God with us. And so would you do me a favor? Would you welcome uh, this morning uh, to the platform, Bill Turkovich. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you. Well, thank you. It's so good to be here this morning. Thank you all for coming out in uh, the rain. I wish I could have brought some of that Dominican sunshine with me, but I tried. It just showed up a day early. Yesterday, I guess, was sunny here, I understand. But it's good to be back. I uh, was reflecting back this morning with Pastor Aaron a little bit. About 21 years ago, I guess it was, about this time of the year, I was in my office. I had pastored a church for 11 years, and, and we were coming into a new year. And I was just praying in my office. We had a men's prayer breakfast every, I forget what it was. I think it was every Friday morning or Monday morning, one of the two, I forget. And uh, it was about at 6 a.m., but I was over there early and just praying. And I I just wanted to hear from God for this new year. And um, complacency just isn't a good thing in our lives. But we all like to be comfortable. And when you're comfortable, it just feels good. And when you get stirred up out of that comfortableness, it's not too comfortable. And so I was just praying and seeking God and, you know, what do we do? What's our emphasis? How do we move forward in this new year? And... Um, yeah, ever had God show up in your life and say something to you? And it's almost like you want to see if there's anybody else up there you can talk to. He says something to you that you really didn't expect or you didn't want to hear. Well, that happened to me that morning. And I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God spoke to me, or at least I heard it on the inside of me. I want you to resign your position here in this church. This is really out of the blue. Out of the blue in the sense that um, I didn't expect that to happen. Uh, Not out of the blue in the sense that I didn't want it to happen. I never wanted to be a pastor. God bless pastors. I pastored for 11 years and hated every minute of it. I did. I pray, God, please let me... I'd draw little stick figures of, you know, a hut and thatched roof and a little campfire and we're out there cooking on it and in some village somewhere doing something besides... We had just built a brand new home, the home of our dreams, and we were comfortable. The church was doing good, and I just didn't expect it at that time. And So when the uh, other men, some of the board members came, I asked some of them to stay and told them what... Uh, you know, I felt like was in my heart, and one of them said, you know, well, you know, six months ago or whatever, God spoke to me and told me you were going to be moving on for us to let you go ahead and let you go, and, you know, it was an emotional time, and, uh, but I resigned my position there, not knowing where I was going or what we were going to do or how we were going to do it, and through a turn of events, we ended up moving our family of four from the home of our dreams and our little comfortable world to at that time what the UN ranked as the worst country in the world uh, in the middle of ongoing civil war we moved our family into Sierra Leone, West Africa and when we were arriving at the airport in Freetown, Sierra Leone um, there was a whole group of missionaries and Peace Corps workers and uh, about all of the other NGO, uh, non-governmental organizations that were being ordered out of the country. And we were moving our family in while they were moving out. And we moved into one room with uh, no running water, no electricity. We cooked out back on coals. and uh, We slept on air mattresses on the floor. And... My youngest daughter, I think, was about five years old, and my oldest was about nine years old, something like that. And they laid on their air mattresses at night and cried. And my wife, Tricia, laid on our air mattress and cried. And I wanted to lay in bed and cry. And 
we bathed out of buckets, and it was just, I mean, it wasn't easy. And, uh, but from those little small beginnings, and I thank God we had it that way because there was a cultural adaptation that we went through that we could relate to the people that we were called to reach. A lot of missionaries come in country and they've got all their support parameters put together and they uh, have their house with their big compound walls and barbed wire on the top of it and air conditioning and all the windows and drive their vehicles. We stood out on the street and took taxis, got into taxis and I don't mean this in a derogatory sense, it's just the truth, but um, you know, people in Sierra Leone just there wasn't deodorant to use, even if they could afford to buy the deodorant, there wasn't such a thing. And you know, taxis weren't private vehicles like just one person or got into them. I mean, there were these like station wagon kind of things, and maybe it was a six seater or an eight seater in the back, but there was 18, 20 of us packed into that thing, hanging out everywhere. And, and it's a hot, too. I mean, it's a hundred and some degrees, and everybody's sweating, and everybody's stinking. And so we just stopped using deodorant. Still don't use it to this day. I <laughs> just kidding me, really. We, we, we converted back. But we wanted to go reach a, or help to reach a world where there weren't all of the ministry gifts going to reach. We wanted to reach the unreached. Uh, I didn't think it was fair where I mean, in America, we can turn on television and at any point in time watch four, five, six other people preach to us, turn on the radio, and we can listen to, you know, every, I don't know, popular uh, uh, Bible teacher preach or teach to us and I just, I, I figured out long ago, I was never called to be a preacher. I, God didn't call me to be a preacher. God called me to be a doer. And I'd do whatever it took to fill that role to the best that I could. But I didn't want to entertain anybody. And if I couldn't make a difference and see change... And I felt like I was just spinning my wheels in the sand, and I sure didn't want to just play religious games. I'm thinking that the worst and the best thing that ever happened to Christianity was when Constantine legalized it. It was the best thing because Christians weren't thrown to the lions anymore and weren't burned in oil or crucified upside down or, you know. But it was the worst thing because after that it didn't cost you anything to be a Christian but when it costs you something to be a Christian it's not just a formality that you're going through something that's convenient for us it becomes something that you've surrendered your life to and you're not in it for what you get out of it you're in it for what you can give to it you're not in it to get blessed. You're, and nothing wrong with being blessed. But that's not your motive for being in it. And most of the time, especially back in those days, they weren't blessed because of it. I mean, spiritually, uh, yes. But, um, I mean, it, it cost them their, their lives. They, they had to pay for it at times w with their lives. And the early missionaries, I mean, even in the areas, I did a little study. The missionaries that used to come into Liberia, uh, the country south of Sierra Leone and Sierra Leone, used to, back in the uh, early 1900s, used to pack their belongings in pine boxes and ship them over uh, on, you know, on a steamship or whatever to get them over there. And their average life expectancy was a year and a half, and they knew that was probably the pine box that they were going to be shipped back in. 
And, but they went. They, they, they still went. And we started out in Sierra Leone with just the most meager beginnings and didn't really know anything about anything. Just trying to make a difference. And I don't know, after about a year or so there, one morning in my prayer time, I, I, on the inside of me, again, I believe it was God, um, this new, con- uh, new organization had come into the country to set up operations there called World Vision. And I'd met the director, and um, we were, you know, becoming friends. And my prayer time, God, I believe God spoke to me and told me to go tell this guy that I would accept responsibility for an STM program. I didn't know what an STM program was. So I, I'm in his office one day, and I'm really kind of fidgety because I don't, you know, if, if, if I say, you know, that, and he says, well, what the heck is an STM program, then uh, I don't know what I'm going to do at that point. But So finally I say, well, listen, I just, I feel in my heart, I, I need to tell you that I'll accept responsibility for an STM program. And he, his eyes got big, he spun around in his chair, opened up a file drawer, pulled out a file, laid it on the table, and it was an opportunity from World Vision International to establish an STM program, a spiritual transformation ministry in the nation of Sierra Leone. So he said, why don't you write a proposal, and we'll submit it, and, um, and see if they accept it. And then attach a budget to it, what it would cost you to, to, uh, to do that. Well, we did, and they accepted it, and we started doing pastors' conferences all over that nation. And uh, crusades, and uh, different type of outreaches. And from that, um, oh, several years later, I was encouraged to go and meet with a fellow who actually is a vice president of World Vision International, a guy named Bryant Myers. And I was a bit intimidated by that man. He had more initials at the end of his name than I think there's in the alphabet. He had written all the books on Michigan and, you know, and researched it and studied it and seemed to know it inside and out. And but this friend of mine set up this meeting and encouraged me to go meet with him. And uh, so I flew out to Monrovia, California one summer when we were back itinerating and sat out in his lobby and waited about 45 minutes after our scheduled meeting. And uh, from the time that I was supposed to see him, sat out there for about 45 minutes waiting on him. I finally go into his office and sit down and start talking for a few minutes. And he seems, after about one minute totally disconnected I'm thinking what in the world am I doing here he's fidgeting around you know on his desk and he finally finds a piece of paper and he picks up his phone and starts dialing the phone never said a word to me (laughs) this guy answers and he says hey I got somebody here in the office I think you need to talk to and gives me the phone (laughs) hello yeah, this is, and told me his name, and he said, he introduced himself and said that he, he's vice president of Gordon College, and, and, but he also was the gentleman that uh, handled uh, this foundation where a guy sold his business and they put about $150 million into a foundation to advance the cause of Christ, and they'd given World Vision about $1.2 million dollars and um, they had about 250, I think it was, $1,000 still in there that they hadn't used. And I talked to him for a few minutes, and he said, well, we'd like to give you that $250,000 to help you out with uh, the work that you're going uh, d- uh, doing there. Would you put Brian back on the phone? So he put him back on the phone, and I didn't feel so intimidated any longer, you know? <laughs> So I'd never had somebody, you know, write out a check for $250,000. Actually, he didn't write it out. It was wire transferred, but about the same thing. <laughs> um, 
So from that, we started a Jesus film project where we uh, partnered with Campus Crusade for Christ and um, ended up with, with the Gideons as well, Gideons International, where, gosh, they shipped us in about, I don't know, well, to start with, it was, I got a call from this fellow named, um, his name just slipped my mind, I'll think of it in a second. But um, he says, uh, Bill, this is uh, Don Glee, uh, president of Gideon's International. And he says, I understand that you might be able to help us get Bibles into Sierra Leone. I said, well, Don, what do you have in mind? He said, well, um, could you handle four containers to start with? Four 40-foot containers. I said, Don, how many Bibles are in a container? He said, well, there's 250,000 in a container. So my mind's going, I mean, because the blessing can turn into a curse. Because <laughs> you've got to warehouse those things. You've got to provide transport for those things. And we're in the midst of a civil war. I said, Don, why don't you send us one to start with and we'll see how it goes. That one turned into uh, over 3.2 million Bibles they shipped into us and... From that uh, beginning there in uh, Monrovia, California with the Jesus Film Project, we ended up hiring 140-some full-time people. We had 16 four-man teams that were going around and showing the Jesus Film Project. We partnered with Campus Crusade for Christ, and they sent in us all the equipment. Well, actually, they didn't send it in. They, they sent it to me. And then, um, you know, you can tell how much, you know, our airline policies and procedures have changed. I uh, showed up at Delta Airlines check-in counter with his 22 70-pound boxes to go to Freetown, Sierra Leone. <laughs> and um, at any rate, that was a whole experience in and of itself because I was supposed to fly. I flew to JFK and... Uh, they gave me the book rate on them, so I forget how much it was, but it's cheaper than spending eight, nine thousand dollars to ship them over there and hopefully, you know, get them out of customs. But, um, but I uh, landed it in JFK with them, and the airline that I was supposed to fly over to West Africa on, I forget, I think it was either Ghana Airways or Air Afrique or one of these, but. At any rate, they were two weeks behind on their baggage. So I knew that wasn't going to happen. I was never going to see those boxes again. <laughs> so I went from one airline to the other with these, you, ever, you know those big carts that they have in the airlines that the porters will come out? And I had two of those stacked up and two of those guys walking around with me from airline to airline. Finally met with a the manager of Sabina Airlines. All the other ones says, well, we have to containerize them, we have to get authority from our office, whatever, to do that, blah, blah, blah. And to make a long story short, this guy finally um, let me put him on Sabina Airlines, and so I flew through Belgium and then on down to West Africa from there with him. Got them all in there. But at any rate, it gave us all the equipment that we needed with the, with the films the Jesus film in the local language groups. And uh, yeah, the first time we set up one of those, they had these big 10 by 10 foot screens. They were two-sided screens so that you could sit on either side of the screen and watch, watch the, uh, the film. We set it up in a town called McKinney and um, it started pouring down rain raining in the middle of the film. We moved the projector under a bleacher area and continued to show the film. And there are three or 4,000 people sitting there in this soccer field, just a dirt bowl of a field. And it just turned into mud, and, and none of them left. Because oh, most of the time we were going into areas where they had no electricity, so they had no television, all that kind of stuff. And most of the people, you know, were like, they couldn't believe that they were hearing this white man talk to them in their own language. Mesmerized by it. And I thought, man, this is, this is bigger than what I ever dreamed of. 
And we started seeing over 100,000 people a month coming to Christ through that project. Well, most of the areas where that was happening, there was no church. So we hired these, I think it was, I don't know, 15. They started with these two-man church planning teams. We bought all these crank-up cassette recorders. You know, those, they seemed like the neatest invention at first, but <laughs> as soon as you stopped cranking, it stopped talking. <laughs> but anyway, they were pretty cool. Because, I, I, you know, they would pass them around in the group and everybody would get their turn. <laughs> and that was the way we started planting churches. And there was about 160 or some of them planted. And, but all this was going on in the midst of a civil war. And it actually got so bad that um, we went through four coup d'etats in just the first three years that we lived there. And the last one got really bad. Uh, we hear a lot about the Navy SEALs and SEAL Team 6 and all those guys. And they actually sent the Navy SEALs in to evacuate us out of the country at one point and got so bad. I, just, I really felt important at that point. Later I found out it was for the ambassador. The American ambassador wasn't for me at all. But uh, we were offered a ride to an aircraft carrier at any rate. And, um, uh, but uh, that's a pretty impressive sight, actually. Big black, it was a two-rotored helicopter thing. And, uh, and it landed, and then these guys come out in the black, you know, fatigues and assault rifles. And pretty impressive sight, at any rate. Um, but my family during that time, I mean, God, we, it was rough on my family. My kids had AK-47s put in their stomach. Our house was just shot up. We, we hit under a, excuse me, I didn't actually mean to get into all this, but um, thank you, sir. We uh, hit under a, uh, a wooden desk in the middle of a hallway uh, because there were no windows and with a zinc roof over the house and there were stray bullets coming down through the roof and passing through the windows and that's the way that we were protected uh, somewhat. And um, I think we have a, everything that we own looted or stolen uh, two or three times. But that was one of the first um, yeah, airlines were a lot... I don't need to get into all that. Forgive me, me. I don't mean to ramble over into all that. But um, it got so bad that after my family was evacuated out, uh, there were no airlines going back into Sierra Leone. And no international airlines would take the chance of just landing at the airport. It was so bad. So I would fly into the country to the north, which is Guinea, and go by road and cross over the border and uh, it wasn't but about 300 miles or so but it'd take anywhere from 12 to 48 hours and go through 50 or 60 different checkpoints and each checkpoint was a different experience because some of them were the local militia called them common joes they had these little mirrors that kind of like burlap type uniforms handmade kind of things and had all these little, called juju or tai tai, they had all these little uh, witchcraft kind of like or uh, secret society stuff, um, uh, little things all over them to, to make them invisible, the bullets. <laughs> I don't know how they kept believing in that stuff <laughs> because, yeah, they, it didn't work, but at any rate, they, they were a trip. And then the next one maybe was the Sierra Leone military. And then the next one maybe was the RUF. These were really the bad guys, the Revolutionary United Front. They were the ones going through all the villages and chopping off people's hands. And, and uh, just, just uh, really bad atrocities. And 
I mean, sometimes they had dead bodies tied together side by side. And that's what they drug back and forth across the road, the enemy guys that they had killed. And that's the checkpoint that you went through. And there's piles of dead bodies and villages that you went through. It wasn't a, it's like working in a war zone. That's exactly what it was for about 11 years. And, uh, but it created, I mean, it was just like the Catch-22, because the Civil War created such a desperateness, such a void that, I mean, from presidents, the military dictators, to, and that's why it got kind of difficult because um, I was actually asked to, to meet with uh, this military dictator of the last coup. And uh, his group, which is the AFRC, and another group called the RUF joined together. And when the RUF overthrew the capital city, they busted into the prison and told all the prisoners, you know, come loot with us. That, that was their motto. Kill, steal, and destroy. And, but there was a guy in there called Johnny Paul Caroma. Johnny Paul Caroma had led another coup, a prior failed coup, but he was educated. He went to school in England and and he was educated, so they came in, put a AK-47 in his stomach, and said, "Come with us. You're our new president." Uh, he's really a figurehead. The RUF, were, he was a puppet for them, but he, the RUF didn't know anything about running the government. All they knew about was killing, and all they wanted was the the diamonds. They just wanted access to the diamonds. They, they just wanted the, the money involved in it all. So, but at any rate. Um, I was asked to come and speak to, to Johnny Paul Caroma one time. And uh, so we went into the president's palace and there were bullet holes on the wall, blood stains on the carpeting, a big uh, hole in the wall where the safe had been blown open and he sat in his big semicircle desk. He had on dark sunglasses and a beret and a bulletproof vest and there was a semicircle of men with AK-47s and brain dark sunglasses. I don't understand. I guess their eyes are just so bloodshot, so drugged and stoned out of their head. The dark sunglasses is a good fit for them. But apart from that, I never understand why they always wear dark sunglasses. It's menacing looking, I guess, apart from the other. There's a semicircle of men with... Uh, dark sunglasses and braids and AK-47s in their hand. So we talked for a few minutes. Make a long story short, he and I joined hands together and there, there were tears hitting his desk. And he asked Jesus to come into his life and gave his life to the Lord at that point. Well, he asked me if I'd come back the next day and he would close down the civilian sector of the government and order all of his commanders to come in and I would be able to speak to all of them. Well, all the commanders, there were 24 of them. These, these guys were all cutthroat murderers. And um, so, I mean, that was a bit intimidating. <laughs> what do you say to these guys anyway? They've been going through the village killing. I mean, going through the country, village to village killing, raping, plundering. Um, well, I agreed to do it, and so the next day, you know, here I am. They had this big table. Uh, Johnny Paul Chrome is here. A guy on his right side, his name was Saj Musa. He was one of the ones that were hung, uh, tried for crimes against humanity and found guilty, and they, they hung him. And then I'm sitting on the the left side of, of this guy. And they're all his field commanders sitting out there and all the civilians and the you know, secretary of all, you know, treasurer, all those kind of things are all sitting out there. I thought to myself, all they'd have to do is just bomb this meeting right here 
and all the wars would be over. I'm glad they didn't, though, by the way. <laughs> At least I personally appreciate that not happening. So I didn't know. I mean, I, I, I spoke to them on the makings of a great leader. And I used Jesus as an example. And I'm trying to come back around here to my point that um, I said what Jesus did, he did for all the right reasons. He didn't do what he did. Well, I, let me back up and say I said, you know, a great leader is one that's willing to sacrifice his life for his cause. Well, all of them could kind of relate to that. They were willing to sacrifice their life to get what they wanted. They were hoping it wouldn't happen, but, you know, when they picked up their guns. And I said, but uh, what Jesus did, he did for all the right reasons. He didn't do it out of soulish aspirations or to get ahead of himself. He, he did it uh, for hurting, suffering humanity. He did it sacrificially for others. And I said, what you've done, you've done for all the wrong reasons. You've done out of a lust and greed for power. It's corrupted you on the inside. There's thousands of people that have been murdered and um, and furthermore, this country's awash with the blood of these tens of thousands of people, and their blood's on your hands. Eh, that didn't go over too well with them. <laughs> like a lead balloon and so I ended up having, at that point, hide out in the bush for a couple of weeks and finally get out of the country and catch a... They sent a I got a hovercraft over to a country called Banjul, the Gambia, and uh, spent some time there for a while. But just saying all that, to come through those checkpoints of the RUF was always an experience because you just never knew what uh, to expect. So again, the catch-22 was that there was an ongoing civil war, but the civil war gave us a voice and to speak to the parliament on numerous occasions, uh, fill up stadiums with 100,000-plus people in them, to, to see tens of thousands of people come to Christ. But after about 11 years of it, um, I don't know what the typical... Uh, duration or tour of duty is uh, for soldiers in the war zone but I don't think it's 11 years but uh, our, mine was 11 years and I finally came to the place where I just couldn't handle any more killing any more bloodshed any more atrocities I didn't want to hear any more of it anymore and I just had it up to here with it all I couldn't process it anymore and uh, we ended up in uh, the Dominican Republic starting some Bible schools there and doing crusades there. And I didn't realize it at the time, um, but uh, we opened up the first Bible school there and it had over 450 people registered for the school. And we ended up doing crusades with over 100,000 people and um, we opened another school, pre-registered over 1,800 students. And it was just like in Sierra Leone because in Sierra Leone we had graduated over... 15,000, 16,000 students there through the years in our Bible schools. Never shut the Bible schools down through all that war. Never, ever shut them down. And we had our team members captured by the rebels. And it was a real funny thing one time. And the rebels came into one of the villages that one of our team members were in. They had uh, disassembled all the equipment. I mean, the little 1,000-watt uh, generator Thing that was valuable in, in that kind of a situation. And at any rate, they hid it up in these little panels in this house. And when the rebels came in and went through everything, they found it and found the films, and they ordered them to show them what was on these films. And, uh, well, they made our team members be their honorary chaplains. Yeah, that went on for a while, and finally they gave them papers to allow them to go into 
free time to visit their families, and of course they didn't come back. But um, so, uh, at any rate, um, I, I didn't realize it, but I had processed a whole lot of uh, atrocities against humanity, and. Um, God blessed our work in, Sarah, uh, in the Dominican Republic. But in looking back, I think that the Dominican Republic was as much for me as it was for anything else. Just to get me in a place where there wasn't a war and I could process some of the... Uh, yeah. It's hard to make sense of mm, driving through a checkpoint and seeing another man that's cut a heart out of a person's chest and he's biting that heart to give him strength, eating that heart. It's hard to make sense of that kind of stuff. Thank God for all the people that get saved, but that stuff's hard to make sense of. So, um, we've been in the Dominican, I guess it's for five, six years now. And uh, I didn't realize I wouldn't eat quite that long. Actually, I didn't even know it was for me. I received a letter, and thank God the war in Sierra Leone, Civil War is over, and uh, it's much more peaceful there now. It's still one of the poorest countries in the world. And Islam, I don't know whether you realize this, but Islam from the north, North Africa, and is infiltrating a lot of West Africa. There was a real openness to, to Christianity. But there's an uh, aggressive movement from some of the more wealthier Islamic states to plant mosques and to uh, infiltrate all of these, uh, especially these West African nations. And a lot of the way that they do it is through, like the civil war in Mali. Um, and create that unrest, and then they come in as the savior with their money, establish their mosque, and bring their people. And at uh, any rate, uh, I got a, a letter, an email from a young man. He was probably a eight or nine year old boy when I met him. I was walking down this trail into a, a small village, and he met me along the way, and uh, we were introduced in the kind of unusual way because he asked me if I would help him uh, with a zipper to, to unzip his pants and he was a nine-year-old boy but uh, the rebels had came through his village and they captured him and his dad and they played a game with him and the game was that they were going to cut off the hands of his dad and he had to watch and if he didn't cry then he got to keep his hands well unfortunately you know he lost and they cut off both his hands excuse me um, so he needed help unzipping his pants. It's a pretty humiliating thing. But um, we kind of adopted him and brought him back to Freetown with us. And there was a Catholic retreat center there. And there were still some nuns there. And we worked with them to provide shelter for him and, and uh, some schooling and things. And, and make a long story short, we were able to get him this surgery where they actually went in and, and cut the bone and made a V out of it like this. And then somehow they do something where they can connect the tendons to where that they'll create at the end of the stump like a scissor. So he can pick up things like that. And um, But through one of the rebel attacks when they overthrew the city, um, and we were evacuated, I lost track of them. And through a turn of events, about six months ago, I received an email from him. And he said, I don't know if you remember me, but went through the whole thing. And of course, I remember you. And he's grown up, he's married, he has two kids. 
and um, he, he wanted to, to know if I would come over and help him start a ministry to reach out to the other amputees that the majority of them, they received some attention right after, you know, the, the war had happened and there were uh, some amputee camps that they all gathered together, but once they were dispersed and um, they're kind of like out of sight, out of mind, they're just, they're just forgotten. And most of them are beggars now. They stand on the street corners begging, that's how they survive. I want to know if I'd come And then he wanted to write a book. He said, I, I, wanna, I feel like I should write a book telling my story. And would you help me with that? And when I received that email, honestly, I hadn't wanted to go back to Sierra Leone. I hadn't gone back to Sierra Leone since we left. It just didn't go, didn't, I mean, it just couldn't. We continued to, to support the work and continued things, but I didn't want to go back. And, um, but I received that letter, and all of a sudden, it started stirring in me on the inside. It's, it's time for you to go back. It's time for you to go back. I come to find out that the Dominican Republic was just a respite, just a place for me and my family to try and recoup for those few years. And, I mean, I'm pushing 60 years old and getting ready to start a whole new chapter of our ministry. Who would have ever thought? And, um, but um, so saying all that to say, uh, about 20 years ago, um, this was one of the first churches that we came to. And this church helped to undergird us and took us in under their wings, so to speak, and been a part of what we were... I remember when we left Sierra Leone, I told Pastor Eric, I said, I don't, I don't know what we're going to do now. I don't even know where we're going to go. I just know that, you know, that, that it's time for me to move on from Sierra Leone. And I'll never forget, he said, I don't care what you're going to do. We're just going to keep on supporting you until you figure it out. And never stop. Every month for 20 years. Can you imagine that? Every month for 20 years, this church has been a part of supporting what we've been doing to try and uh, make a difference. Well, um, I hadn't planned on doing all this, but the whole complacency thing uh, kind of... You, you, you're the one who really instigated all this. Because we were comfortable. I mean, life was pretty decent. I'd been given a, about an acre and a half of property right on the Caribbean Sea. I mean, you stepped out the door and there's the ocean. You can't swim there. It's a, you know, like a lava rock coastal line there, but... Sure enough, beautiful. Uh, we had Bible schools all, going all over the country. Uh, it was comfortable, but it was comfortable. I guess too comfortable. Really, it's too comfortable for me because like I told Pastor Aaron this morning, I was just bored. I get bored when it's too easy. It's not challenging enough. I'm just, that's just the way I'm wired. He's got a, Pastor Aaron's got a, uh, a, like a desk like this in his office so he can stand up and do his thing that no one to just sit behind a, a desk all day and I'm, I'm not either I'm not wired that way and so uh, next month we'll be uh, well I'll be going to uh, back to Sierra Leone and for about 30 to 45 days, and we'll be working to set up our infrastructure there again and then move, uh, well, it's just my wife and I now, um, with kids and that are grown up now and, and, uh, and grandkids, a four-year-old and a 
six months old, which is not too easy on her uh, or me either. But um, back to uh, to Sierra Leone, and it just when Pastor Aaron was like, "Well, let me get back with you on a date," and it came back the twenty eighth of. December, and I was in the back of my mind, are you sure that, that, that just a couple days after Christmas and right before the new year? And, and um, but then he said something. It was like, well, you're leaving in January. It could be like us sending you off, be a part of your send off. And I thought, you know, just how appropriate, how wonderful. And so. I guess I'm just here this morning to say thank you to this church. Thank you for putting your confidence in us. Um, you really had a lot of faith. I'm, I'm telling you. To do that, you need a great faith. Um, and to say more than anything else, I guess that it's a new year. Like our brother was talking about, it's a whole fresh new start. You can choose to make this year different than, or next year different than this year. Better. And I think the way to make it better is to have less of me and my aspirations and be more connected with a, a heavenly uh, purpose. Because I, I know it's, i got to finish here, but I, I just, I have to say this, and forgive me if, if I uh, offend anybody, but I, I never understand Christians that don't reproduce except when they're baby Christians. But at some point, we should grow up. And as we grow up, the whole purpose of Christianity is to reproduce ourselves. To take what we've been given and offer it to others. And uh, I, I, I need to qualify that. I don't understand Christians that don't at least sow seeds. Because, you know, sometimes you harvest and sometimes you plant. And, but all of us are called to reproduce ourselves. I'm, I, there, there are some things in the, you know, the, the more I know, the more I realize I don't know. There's a lot of things I don't understand. I don't understand how, if I interpret the Bible to be correct, that those who haven't heard the gospel and aren't saved could end up in hell. I don't understand that. Because in my mind, I think the ones that were Christians and were supposed to go and tell but didn't should be responsible, not the person that haven't heard. And I don't know that, that that's correct. I mean, that if you haven't heard. Maybe God, that that, you know that the whole um, Acts 4.12, that there's no other name under heaven among men whereby ye must be saved. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I don't, I don't, I don't get that if you haven't heard got to be some kind of other I mean I don't know that that's one of the things I don't understand but I do think this that if we're supposed to go and tell and we don't then the responsibility should be ours not theirs send us to hell because we didn't go do anything with what you died for us to have So I think this new year is, is kind of like a, a, 
I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful opportunity for us to really say, you know, in our own hearts, God, here I am. Use me. Help me to see past myself. Help me just see a little bit from your perspective. And, and have a heart to, to make a difference in somebody else's life. Have a heart to, to build the kingdom of God here on earth. And not just my own kingdom. Furthermore, and I just might be getting myself in all kinds of trouble this morning, but furthermore, I think if, if, if that's what we're about, we don't consciously acknowledge it, but we're just, that's our primary focus is building our own kingdom. And we believe heaven is a far better place. How many of you believe that heaven's going to be awesome? Amen. Well, it's going to be so much better than what it is down here when we just check out and go there. Well, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out God left us here on this earth with a purpose in mind. And that purpose is bigger than ourselves. So God help us to, uh, to rise up and endeavor to uh, fulfill that purpose. God, I ask you to help us to have hearts that are soft and tender and pliable in your hands. I'm not saying these things to condemn or to criticize, but uh, hopefully to encourage. And that it's never too late. You never give up on us. And um, so mold and shape our hearts and, and, uh, and use us to to make a difference. Help us to get out of the rut of just thinking about us and ours and, and make a difference in the world that we live in. And God, I thank you for this church and for Pastor Aaron and all this church staff and all the elders and leaders in this church and They'll never know how much they've meant to us through the years. I thank you for them. and Thank you for the good work that you're doing here and that this is a church that's not just about uh, building uh, their own kingdom and what's going on inside of these four walls, but reaching out individually and collectively outside of these four walls to to go out and, and, and touch somebody that's hurting. And I thank you, Father God, for that and for an exciting new year coming up and the good things that you have in store for us. Uh, may we rise to the occasion. And, uh, I thank you for that. Amen.